Join the Wall Street Journal's Tech Live Cybersecurity on June 6, 2024, in New York City, to be at the forefront of shaping the future of cybersecurity and creating a more secure digital landscape. Use the discount code PODCAST to receive $200 off your registration fee. Visit wsj.com slash techcyberpodcast to learn more. Coming up on Money Beat, you might be surprised to hear this, but there are fewer publicly traded companies today than there were 20 years ago. There are fewer publicly traded companies today than there were 40 years ago. There are a lot fewer publicly traded companies. Why are there fewer? What does this mean? What are the ramifications for you as an investor? What are the ramifications for the capital markets and for the efficient functioning of our economy? That's what we're going to talk about next. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Money Beat. I am Paul Vigna. I'm Steve Grosser. And uh, if, if you're out there and you're thinking to yourself, gosh, I wish there was a good U.S. stock I could invest in. I got I to gotta go find me a U.S. stock to invest in. You might be surprised to learn that you have fewer options today than you had 20 years ago. In fact, you have a lot fewer options today than you had 20 years ago. 40 there, years ago. <laughs> than 40 years ago, right. There are simply fewer publicly traded companies in the United States today than there were 20, 40 years ago. Why is that? What does that mean? What are the ramifications of that for the markets, for investors? That is what we're talking about today. And we are joined by a man who wrote uh, a really detailed, long report on it. Michael Mubison is head of global financial strategies at Credit Suisse. He is here in the studio with us. Michael, how are you? Good, Paul. How are you? Doing all right. Uh, we are also joined by Ben Eisen, our compatriot on the Money Beat blog. Ben, how are you doing? Good. How are you, Paul? I'm all right. Good to have you here. You know, I haven't seen you in quite a long time. I've been quite a while since yeah. I turned around and saw right, you back. Right. <laughs> uh, Michael, what? You know, it's interesting because, because like, like we said, this is a trend that has been going on for for several decades now. What made you uh, d- do this deep dive into it now? What's the significance of this now? You know, Paul, I just I had seen this uh, statistic around and hadn't uh, really unpacked exactly what was behind it. Uh, and I, but I thought it was fascinating. I think this whole topic is fascinating. Yeah. And um, I think what sparked me in particular that there have been a slew of academic papers that have been on this topic in the mm-hmm. last, say, six to twelve months, and they were, they were things that we could add to. Um, that was one big catalyst. The second big catalyst is this ongoing discussion about the move from active management to passive to indexing, and, and specifically. And the question is, what are the alternatives for investors? So those are some of the, the catalyzing things, and. Once you look into it, there are all these very interesting sort of repercussions right. of this shrinking universe. Well, well let's if, right off the bat, right off the top, how many publicly traded companies are there today? So it's about 3,700, and that's down 50% from wow. 1996. And as Stephen mentioned, it's actually down from 1976. So that's, you know, that's the thing to take in is GDP – adjusted for inflation is three times larger today than it was in 1976. Mm-hmm. And yet we have fewer publicly listed companies. And by the way, in, in the mid-70s is when the Wilshire 5000 yep. was laid out right. to capture the 5,000 companies with price information. The Wilshire 5000 has about 3,800 stocks yeah. today. Doesn't right? even have 5,000 <laughs> anymore. No, uh, I mean, I thought there were a lot of like actually really interesting stats looking at the difference in the market today versus... Um, yes, and shows uh, you know I think those stats actually show some of the trends we're going to be talking about 
as we go on. But the average market capitalization was six hundred and twenty million. Now it's six point eight billion. Um, you know, like they're just. I think interesting things like that. Mutual funds. What is it? For, there's forty million in mutual funds now. There's eight point what or forty billion, and now there's eight point seven trillion. Exactly. I mean, it's just the markets have seen massive changes. Well, and, and I think part years. of that market cap thing also is that a lot of this has come as a result of mergers and acquisitions. Right. So, right? Paul, the way to think about this is step back and say, why do we have half as many companies mm-hmm. today as we did in 1996? And they're basically public companies, public companies yeah. of course. And it's basically addition subtraction, right? So what takes away from our population is permit. There, there's bankruptcies and delistings, but most of it is M and A. Exactly mm-hmm. to your point, and there's much of the M and A is companies buying one another that are public. So we'll call that strategic. But of course, what's new on the scene or newish in the last twenty years is private equity firms and buyout firms, and so companies are buying one another, and there are other other issues related to that, which is the companies that exist today are older. They're more profitable. Industries themselves are, on average, more concentrated. So these are all the, these things also have um, again implications right. for valuation, for uh, buybacks and dividends. I mean, all this stuff sort of falls out of this discussion. That's super and one of, one of the things I think is interesting is, you, and you point this out in the paper, that IPOs and M and A used to move sort of in tandem. They both heat up at similar times. I mean, you saw that during the dot com boom when you know M and A was roaring and the IPO market was roaring. Lately, though, that has not been the case. The IPO market has remained muted for the last 15 years, while M&A has had two, you know, um, you know, sort of booms, I would say. Like 2015 was one record year. 2007, 2006 was another record year. Why has that sort of divergence happened? It's a hard one to answer. Um, I think that the academics would say uh, this concept of proclivity to list, right, which is basically saying – Let's look at whether we should listen. It's a cost-benefit analysis. And the basic argument is the costs have gone up more than the benefits, so net benefits are not as good as they are today. And, and by, one, by one reckoning, the proclivity to list is half of what it was in 20 years, and that explains a lot of this. Now, part of that's regulation. Another aspect, by the way, are that many of these young companies are less capital-intensive than they were a generation or two before. And now we've had this new market in essentially late-stage venture. Right. So these guys are getting access to money. So they don't need as much money, but they're getting the money. And so they're delaying what a generation or two would have been an IPO because they can. And, I mean, you guys do an amazing job of listing, you know, I guess we'll call them unicorns, these companies with yeah. a billion-dollar market yeah. cap. And I think we're north of 150 of those today. I mean, it's extraordinary. It's like these guys, their engines are idling, right? But they're, but they're perfectly happy to remain yeah. private. And it's even situations like, uh, you know, Airbnb did a big round, and part of that money, that late-stage venture, went to buy out employees. So basically, basically the, the employee compensation issue right. has been addressed, right? So that's all really interesting. The, the other thing I'll say about IPOs that I found fascinating is, you know, great example is Amazon.com, which went public about 20 years ago at, in today's dollars, a $625 million market cap. I don't know exactly where Amazon is today. It's north of $400 billion, mm-hmm. right? So if you bought it on the IPO and just held it, you would have done fabulously well. Um, Facebook, by contrast, has got about the same market cap. But when it went public, it had a market cap of north of $100 billion. Yeah, right. right. So this is this pre-IPO value creation versus 
post-IPO value creation. And that dynamic has really been very different as well. I mean, I think it's, it's interesting, though, that at the same time, I mean, the IPO isn't dead. You still do have some pretty high-profile IPOs. We had the Snap IPO uh, already this year. I mean, what is it that, you know, given all of the reasons not to list, why, why, do, why do companies still do it? Yeah, so I, I, Ben, I think the numbers are, you know, from from seventy six to two thousand, you know, we had something like two hundred and thirty, two hundred forty per year on average. And Stephen makes this really good point, which is, if you in the olden days it was all cycles, you know, when the markets were up, IPOs and M and A flowed, and when they were down, they the spigot was turned off. But since two thousand, and part of the financial crisis, I'm sure played a role. It's been just slightly over a hundred, right? Now. By the way, writing this piece, I don't know if you guys ever get the sensation. I, I, I get the sensation when I put the pen down that every trend that we've described here is going to reverse, right, the moment <laughs> that it's done. So let's not, let's not rule that out as well. But, um, yeah, so, so it's not to say there are no IPOs. I mean, again, we, we have uh, 100 plus, 100 and 150 on average. The other interesting thing is in private equity, these guys used to buy public companies, hold them for, say, three to five years, and then they would reintroduce them to the public markets in an IPO. That has gone way down as well. So the, the the exit strategies of private equity firms are much less now about IPOs and much more about selling either to other corporates or selling to other private equity firms. By the way, so just shuffling the assets yeah. from one and that's and that's also taking place in the tech universe with the young startups because you have a lot of like dual track now where you're exploring an IPO but you're also putting yourself up for sale and you have the apples and the googles who have war chests of cash that can come in and buy them. One of the things, though, I want to talk about Snap is the the shareholder control, where shareholders are buying in. One of the things we've heard from investors over and over is this cultural shift in Silicon Valley about, you know, worried about giving up control of the company to when you go public to shareholders. How much, do you think that cultural shift is part of the cost analysis that's sort of going on that's keeping companies from maybe tapping the public markets as early as they could have? Well, I mean, I actually don't know about that, but it seems to me that would be a benefit from a company's point of view if they can, they don't have pressure. You know, one yeah. of the costs would be you have a shareholders looking over your shoulder right. and perhaps voting against you and so forth. And if they basically have no say in how you're running your business, that I guess would be uh, less of a concern. So I don't know. But yeah, those are, those are interesting topics and in governance. And, you know, there had been some precedent for lots of control, mostly for freedom to, for the company to do what it wants. But uh, it, it does feel like the last certainly 10 or 15 years, some of these tech companies have been able to pull this off yeah, and right. have much less rights for the shareholders. And, uh, you know, probably like they, they go public, but not. Yeah, they're not. You're not beholden. Fully, yeah, they're not beholden. beholden. Uh, yeah. And Zuckerberg got dragged kicking and screaming into the public markets. I mean, he did not want to take Facebook private. He put it off as long as he could. Let's take a break. We have an important message. We'll come back on the other side with more about the uh, public the IPO market, M&A, what it means to be public in America today. Join the Wall Street Journal in New York City on June 6, 2024, for the inaugural Tech Live Cybersecurity to network and hear from leading cybersecurity experts across a variety of sectors on how to combat cybersecurity threats, mitigate crippling attacks, and safeguard privacy on the individual and organizational level. Use the discount code PODCAST to receive $200 off your registration fee. Visit wsj.com slash techcyberpodcast to learn more. For more insights, enable the Wall Street Journal skill on any device with Amazon Alexa. Get all of our podcasts, as well as the latest news and market updates. The Wall Street Journal. Listen ambitiously. 
Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Money Beat. We're here in the studio today with Ben Eisen, Wall Street Journal reporter, and Michael Mabusin, who is head of global financial strategies at Credit Suisse, wrote a, a really long research report that we got our hands on, and we wanted to have him in to talk about it. And, and Michael, before we go any further, there's one you had, you had referenced uh, the difference in returns between, say, Amazon 20 years ago and Facebook a couple of years ago. But, but I really want you to to give the actual numbers and percentages, because the way you put it in the report, I mean, it was just, it was stark in the the kinds of returns you could expect when you could invest in a company like Amazon that was relatively young when it went public compared to a company like Facebook that was relatively mature when it went public. Right. So Amazon was founded in 1994, I believe. Something or, like or, that, right. And, and they went public in 1997, and almost exactly 20 years ago. I yeah. think it was May 1997. And as I mentioned, if you had bought on the IPO and just uh, fallen asleep for 20 years, you would have made 565 times your money. Right. right. Which is just astounding, right? So again- Over 20 years, 20 but years, still. but it's still a big right. number. And, and again, just using, again, today's dollars, not those dollars at the time, it was a market cap of about $625 million, and today it's a little over $400 mm-hmm. billion. So again, Facebook went public, again, using today's dollars. Now, they were much older. They were, I think, eight years older, um, eight years from founding. And the market cap was $110 billion. Right? right Now, they've gone from $110 billion to over $400 billion, So they've, they've a little more than tripled your money. But taking a step back and saying, is there any mathematical way that Facebook in the next 20 years, or right. the first 20 years since their IPO, could deliver anything remotely close to what Amazon? And the answer is mathematically, it's basically impossible. Right. Right? And that's, so that's a th- this interesting thing. And, and I'll say the other thing about this whole topic is it's also another interesting topic, just issue about people getting access to equity markets. Right, exactly. So you're the chief investment officer of an endowment. In 1976, you basically buy the market, you maybe early stage venture, and you're mm-hmm. good to go. If you're the CI of an endowment today, it's early stage venture, it's late stage venture, it's private equity, yeah. and public markets. Us normal people don't have access to all that right. stuff. I mean, right. we might be able to get access through different channels, but basically we don't have access right. to Th- those, that. Those years of a young company's growth between you know say year three and year eight or what those are those are especially when you can you know we always talk about growth rates and everything young companies grow much faster than mature i mean it's just it's it's the law of averages so as an investor you really are missing out on on key years for the growth of a company that you can get potential returns on and then you also have i mean an m&a market and you look at this and this is a topic we've talked over and over again here what we've seen is the sort of horizontal merger for the last since the financial crisis, com- big companies getting bigger, buying you know competitors, grab market share, cut costs to you know basically improve their earnings, um, and that has left. I mean, what you, you, and Michael describes it well in the paper. It's just you have a lot of you have much bigger companies with much more profitable and giving back a lot more money, but that's fundamentally changed the capital markets. Yeah. And, you know, one thing, Stephen's interesting is we talk about regulation and, and there are two aspects of it. One is more regulations created onus for companies to come public. And that's probably reduced their proclivity to come public. And I think, you know, Sarbanes-Oxley in 2002, although this trend was well in place before Sarbanes-Oxley, but we have to acknowledge that probably created a drag. But the flip side is, as you point out, the, basically in regulation, we've allowed these companies, these industries to consolidate. And one of the ways you can measure that is a fancy term called the Hershendahl Index. And the Hershendahl, the Hershendahl, you know, went from you can imagine that our population we've been describing is an upside down U, right? What started in '76 went to a peak and then it's back down. 
And the Herfindahl index is a perfect U. In other words, it went down. It was at, at its low around 1996 and has gone way up, and higher means more concentrated. So exactly. And so we also had this ongoing discussion about buybacks and dividends, but this also falls out of this yeah. discussion as well because these are older companies, more mature companies, more profitable companies with less growth prospects. So what are they going to do? And the answer is they're going to give money back to their shareholders, and that's probably not an unreasonable solution. Well, one thing that I'm curious to hear more about is, is um, you know, given that this is sort of a secular trend, it seems, and it's been going on for a long while, I mean, how have investors sort of adapted as a result, or have they even adapted at all? I mean, it seems it seems that, that, that money continues to pile into the stock market, um, and perhaps the market is smaller than it used to be. Perhaps that plays some role in, in, in where stock prices are at now. Or is it that investors have maybe started to look more so outside of the public markets for returns? Have have those who kind of used to just buy up, buy up in a long short strategy just buy up stocks? Are they now looking for, uh, you know, pre IPO companies or, or 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 anything like that? So I'll mention two things, Ben. It's an awesome question. I mean, if you think about if you look at surveys of you know, institutional investors, so think pension funds and endowments and so forth. Almost always, they indicate that they're going to do more alternatives. And this really is this burgeoning alternatives area, right? So private equity, for example, or venture capital. So they're trying to capture these different aspects of corporate equities. Um, second is, even among the mutual funds, we see this little market for pre-IPOs, right? So companies like Fidelity get this, and they say the new IPO is basically pre-IPO. So they're participating in these investments, like buying the Ubers and the Airbnbs and these rounds, right? So they're doing essentially late-stage venture. Now, that's not exactly what they do or their history of doing, but they're participating in some way, shape, or form. And the third thing is, you know, because markets don't like a void, we've got this uh, growth in exchange-traded funds. And it's a really interesting little datum is that even though we've seen this reduction in number of listed companies, that in some part has been filled by ETFs, which are now about 15% of the listed uh, number. So if you take ETFs, divided by ETFs plus public stocks, it's a 15% number. And, and by the way, it's about 30% of the exchange trading volume. So in a sense, we've created, you want to call it a derivative, if you want, we've created something to fill the gap to keep us busy, right? even though there are less underlying stocks. And do you ever do, do they also use ETFs to sort of fill the void, like you know, creating like a growth, you know, a growth ETF or something like that, to, so investors can still get sort of access to some of these things? Have you seen that sort of pop up? Sure. I mean, that's been. I mean, so you know, I think we give the numbers in there. There were there were you know, of course, nineteen seventy six zero ETFs, and there were, I think all of two equity ETFs in nineteen ninety six one two. There are now six hundred fifty eight wow. in the United States, just equity ETFs. So in the piece I mentioned, this, I, I also find this fascinating. So there's a really interesting uh, handicapper named Stephen Christ. He worked for the New York Times for many years writing their handicapping column. And he wrote a book. He said back in the 1970s. You're talking about horse racing. Uh, uh, horse racing. Yeah, horse yeah. racing. Yeah, horse yeah. racing. And he said back in the 1970s, most bets were win, play, show. So if you went to the horse, you'd you know, uh, bet on that horse mm-hmm. to win. You know, you want to be more conservative, place or show. He goes, almost all the – so it was 90 percent, something like that. Almost all the bets now are what are called exotics. You know, trifectas, you're betting on one, two, three, different outcomes from different races, right? You essentially, you're betting the derivatives of things versus the underlying. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, yeah. So, so I think that's sort of – it's like a natural tendency of markets if they want to continue to grow is to be less focused on the underlying and more on these – essentially these derivatives, which is super interesting. So I think that's, a, that's been – I mean, going back to Ben's point, that's sort of how has the ecosystem changed? You'd have to say people are looking at these other alternative investments – 
and also these, we'll call them derivatives, whatever you want to call them, but, but basically they sprout from the underlying. And then, I mean, does, does that kind of create its own sort of new risks more broadly for the capital markets? I mean, does that then mean that, that there's more leverage attached to each stock, that, you know, smaller moves could have more, more of an outsized influence on the markets as a whole? So I don't know that it's leverage, but you think about why are active managers important for society? And the answer is this fancy term called price discovery, right? They make markets efficient. Um, And so in theory, if you're buying uh, an ETF or an index fund, you hope that the price is relatively efficient and you're just riding riding the wave. Well, here's the question. Can it be the case that instead of the dog wagging the tail, the tail starts to wag the dog? In other words, demand for the ETFs themselves move the underlying, right? Because these things have to be... Um, they're ar- arbitraged, yeah. right? They're arbitraged to reflect underlying. And that, to me, becomes the interesting question. So it's this departure. The question is, do we, do we raise the possibility of departures from price discovery, which is an essential – actually, I don't want to be grandiose, but it's a, it's a societal, it's a societal important, societally important thing for us to have markets that are roughly efficient. Yeah. And that, that becomes an interesting question. And uh, does it does, – if everyone sort of is moving into like ETFs and stuff like this, and this is something we – once again, talked about, does, does, it, does that have the chance of creating more sort of market instability in some regards, where if everyone is in the, you know, the sort of same stocks through ETFs and stuff like that, if there's, you know, um, if everyone gets sort of panicky and decides to start selling, I mean, everyone's going to sort of feel the same pain and sort of move and... I, I think it's an, an unbelievably interesting question. My hunch is the answer is yes. I'll say there are three things I think are happening as a consequence of, we'll say, indexing generally, but ETFs would be part of that discussion. One is, you know, we can call them demand shocks, but there's actually a lot of literature and finance where if, if there's steady drumbeat of buying of demand, that will affect prices essentially, right? So mm-hmm. that'll change valuations. The second is, and I think we've got good evidence for this, is intra-sector correlations are going up. So if the investors decide they like restaurants, they buy the restaurant ETF, and they all go up. And there's no discrimination between the weak and the, po- and the, and the uh, strong. They all go up, okay, or they all go down. And the third is, I think, Stephen, most closely to your point, <clears throat> the thing that worries me a little bit is liquidity. And, you know, when markets are going up, we don't worry so much about liquidity, right? Liquidity being defined as the ability to translate a cash into an asset or an asset into cash without affecting the price very much or, and doing it fairly costlessly. Um, I think we might have a real problem with liquidity if we have some sort of material drawdown, and that's the thing I would worry about. We have been speaking with Michael Mabusin, who is head of global financial strategies at Credit Suisse. I uh, wrote a report called The Incredible Shrinking Universe of Stocks. Michael, thanks for coming in today. My pleasure, Paul. Thank we, you. We appreciate it, and our listeners appreciate it, too. Everyone, thank you, as always, for uh, hitting clicking, <laughs> for clicking play, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. The Wall Street Journal. Listen ambitiously.